All podcasters know the best way to grow your show is through word of mouth. We created a referral link that makes it easy to share the podcast by text, email, or DM to anyone you know who could use a little dose of inspiration for civic engagement and our collective future. Follow the link in our show notes to go to our referral page. You can easily share a unique referral code directly from there. Once you share our show with five friends who download the podcast, I'll send you a handwritten thank you note and a future hindsight button to thank you for your support. If you share it with 10 friends who download an episode, I'll send you a branded future hindsight moleskin notebook. Yup, a real moleskin notebook with our logo on it. Thank you for spreading the word and thank you for listening. Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm your host, Mila Atmos. Each week, I speak with citizen changemakers who spark civic engagement in our society. Our guest today is Tamara Lee. She's an industrial engineer, labor lawyer, and assistant professor at the Rutgers School of Management and Labor Relations, whose teaching focuses on identity politics in the workplace and labor market discrimination. This is a big picture conversation about how we can define equity and justice for workers in these times, and we do so by examining wage disparity, gender bias, and of course, race. Traditionally in the United States, unions have taken what we call a colorblind approach to organizing and to servicing as union members. And what that means is that they've tended to primarily focus themselves on issues of class without acknowledging that class is also a racially coded system. And so if we try to act like there are no variances in our working class, those variances are going to recreate themselves in collective bargaining agreements. And so unions have to do that internal work of actually going, listen, these are the salient interest of all of the different types of workers that we have in our membership. And what is the best way to address those systemic issues? We talk about income and wealth inequality, innovations in labor unions, and reimagining labor laws. Let's listen in. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. So we're interested in understanding structural racism at the workplace in the United States that may be invisible to all except those directly affected. And since you work at the intersection of labor and racial justice, can you give us a concrete example of how this looks in practice? One way in which this shows up is in wage disparity, for instance. We have a gender wage gap. We also have a racial wage gap. And we have other wage gaps based on all of our social identities that are constructed by society. So when we talk about the wage gap, you hear that women make less than men. But often, I think the issue isn't so much that they're making less money for the same job, although that does happen as well. But it seems to me from everything that I've read, it is primarily that women have lower wage jobs in general than men. So that is true, but other things are also occurring and that gets more complicated and the obstacle gets greater when we overlap it with other marginalized social identities like race or disability or sexual orientation. 
How does it actually work in practice? And I don't know if this is something that you can answer, but let's say I'm a manager and I'm about to hire somebody and I have several good candidates, a white man and let's say a woman of color, and they're equally qualified. Does this manager then offer the job for less money to the woman or do they normally actually just offer the same wage? So there are a lot of things that happen at that point of hiring and even happen before, like with the job posting, with deciding who's a good candidate, quote unquote, who's qualified, quote unquote. And if we look at the systemic issues, we know that all of those things, good qualified are all coded racially. So it may be that a hiring manager is working on an implicit bias that's been built into our system to think that this particular candidate is not as suited as somebody who is a male or white in terms of the company's culture. But also what may happen is that a hiring manager may individually make decisions that are discriminatory. And that can be intentional or unintentional. So the way someone's last name sounds, you know, that someone is a woman. And then depending on what level of job we're talking about or what occupation, sometimes the candidate is allowed to negotiate salary. And we have a number of different ideas about what power someone from a gender marginalized group or from a racially marginalized group might do as an individual to combat implicit or explicit bias by a hiring manager. But as we talk more about it, I would probably reframe that as something that should be done by the organization and not be a burden to the applicant. In what way are these things sort of insidious and just deeply embedded in our hiring practices? For a long time in labor studies, we have known that work has often been gendered, intentionally decided by those folks who are most privileged in society, what type of work women do, what type of work men do. We have had studies over the decades that have shown that when men engage in what is traditionally or stereotypically, we would say now, women's work, like for instance, nursing. They fast track into managerial positions faster than women, but it doesn't work that way the opposite. That's because we know that there's still gender inequality in the way in which we hire, the way in which we design jobs, and also in the laws that are meant to protect us by these classifications of identity, but often are institutionalized or codified to recreate the hierarchies that were crafted a long time ago. Since you work at the intersection of labor and racial justice, can you explain what it is that you try to achieve? All of the structural inequalities that impact racially marginalized groups occur in every single system that we have in the society. So we could talk about intersections of racial justice and prison justice or racial justice and environmental justice. But the truth is that we're just trying to have justice. The work that I do is really about how a political economy is arranged, what we call an industrial relations system, and what are the inequalities in that system, and what 
might we need to think about if we want to achieve justice and how do we define justice? So those are the kind of things that I think about all the time. And I do work in the United States, but I also do work in socialist systems. I'm an expert in the way in which Cuba approaches these issues of equity and equality and whether or not those things are synonyms or (laughs) subset of the other. In terms of the work that you've done in Cuba, how does it inform what we could achieve here in terms of justice or maybe even in helping us define justice for workers in the United States? I think that Cuba and other types of societies with different approaches to these issues are very good and necessary for us to contemplate, to sort of have the imagination of what could be possible if we change certain things at its foundation. For instance, if we took the Cuban situation They rewrote their constitution recently, and what they've been trying to do in their system is build in equity. The way they approach equity is not the same as we approach it in the United States. Because Cuba recognizes that women are still the primary caregivers in terms of family, but they are also working as hard as men in the formal workplace, what they think is equity is that, hey, then women should retire five years earlier. (laughs) Right. If you, for instance, do something like as a government, decide that pay scales will be set, that erases sometimes the gender and the racial differences because you get paid by the job classification and not by being a woman or being a black person. And the closest thing that we have to that in the United States would be the trade union movement. So when trade unions come in, part of what they usually negotiate is a contract that sets pay scales or at least tries to somehow mitigate the gap between all of the different social identities that we have. We're not always successful with that as unions, but the science does prove a shrinking of the wage gap when there is a union. Yes, there's a lot of evidence of that. Although I read your op-ed about how there continue to be racial inequities, even within unions. I'm quoting you back here. You say, despite being twice as likely to unionize, black workers continue to suffer twice the unemployment rate of white workers. And while unionization significantly narrows the wage gap for black workers, it does not eliminate it. Why is that? Well, that's because the structural inequality, the systems or the institutions that we have in the society that make it more of a penalty to be Black, and by penalty I mean there's some obstacle to equality and equity, those obstacles are systemic meaning they impact more than just your individual workplace. They impact society at large. And so if unions are not working to mitigate or drive policy decisions that attack structural inequality in all of our systems. And by that, I mean education system, healthcare, access to voting, all of those things that we are impacted in as members of a society. If the union isn't working to also change those things, they are going to play out in the workplace. Also, at an individual level or at the the level of unionization, you have to have diversity and inclusion in your union leadership to be able to identify those things that you earlier 
alluded to as invisible, right? So that we make sure that we are bargaining contracts that allow for Black people to have all of their needs met in order to be equal with our white counterparts. I would suggest that this takes our conversation to what is a bigger problem identified by most social scientists these days, which is the wealth gap. There are things that are happening in society that are making it so that even if we were paid equal wages with white counterparts, or even if Black women made the same as white men, we are not able to accumulate the wealth because of racism and structural discrimination in all of our other supporting systems to the labor market. What are, in your mind, perhaps the most pernicious systemic problems that prevent let's say a black woman, from accumulating the same amount of wealth as a white man? First of all, if we're talking about the black experience in the United States, it goes all the way back to slavery. (laughs) The legacies of the initial racial hierarchies that we founded the society on has led to the wealth gap. And it is intergenerational and it exponentially increases. The policies that we created, our Supreme Court decisions, our institutions like banking, housing, education have contributed to the widening of the wealth gap even in 2020. And it has not been substantially impacted by sort of the legal interventions we've had at critical junctures in the society. We have data that shows that Black people with college degrees have less wealth than white people who don't even have high school diplomas. Black people who work full-time have less wealth than unemployed white people. And what we do know also about those wealth gaps is that those aren't about bad choices by Black people. These are intentional gaps that were created by policies and judicial decisions, et cetera. And so when we have white and Black families with the same wealth, they tend to make the same choices in terms of individual savings, investment, et cetera. But we know even in 2020, we've had substantial evidence that there's still discrimination in the rates in which Black folks get mortgages, for instance. There was a study a year ago about Black students who are getting higher education paying a higher interest rate on their student loans. And that continues with us as we age. In terms of the labor market, and maybe specifically when it comes to unions, how do you suggest unions use their power to collectively bargain in addressing racial and economic abuse of Black union members? Unions are doing some innovative things, but I want to say that unions and the union movement has to do the internal work first of combating racial disparities and inequality within its membership and within its leadership. So that means unions have to reimagine and make space for people of color, for women to be in leadership positions where strategic decision making is occurring about what should be the priorities that the union is seeking in a collective bargaining agreement or in political change. And this is my greatest advice to unions is to, especially in the low-wage sector where there is a disproportionate population of women and people of color and immigrants, that union leadership 
needs to be comprised of those demographics and also open to the fact that those folks have structural issues that they have identified that maybe the union can't see that are important for going to work and participating in the labor market. An example would be for the Black community, Black Lives Matter arguably is a labor issue, right? Because you have to be able to get to work without being murdered either by police or vigilantes. And so this is something the union should be concerned with, but maybe traditionally would not be. And I talk a lot in my work about the fact that traditionally in the United States, unions have taken what we call a colorblind approach to organizing and to servicing as union members. And what that means is that they've tended to primarily focus themselves on issues of class without acknowledging that class is also a racially coded system. And so if we try to act like there are no variances in our working class, those variances are going to recreate themselves in collective bargaining agreements. And so unions have to do that internal work of actually going, listen, these are the salient interest of all of the different types of workers that we have in our membership. And what is the best way to address those systemic issues? I said I'd give you some examples of things I think unions are doing that are exciting. And that would be, for instance, Jobs with Justice, which has long been a champion of low-wage workers, do something that they call whole squid organizing, whole worker organizing, which is to look at what are all the issues facing a worker from that demographic? Is it that there are concerns about immigration? Is it that there are concerns about you know, institutional safety, and then try to engage in the type of bargaining for the common good, which is to look at and engage with members of the community and sort of bringing the community into the bargaining table. Those are very exciting and innovative things that are happening in the labor movement. They're resulting in some collective bargaining agreements that have been really praised and shared as models for how to be a more comprehensive type of service to workers in the working class. And it's more justice-based instead of just economics-based. I think that that is the direction that unions have to go if they're going to you know, have any relevancy in the future labor market or even this one. You talked also about reimagining our workers to be in a thriving community. What would a thriving community of workers look like to you? Your workforce is only as well as the most marginalized group of workers. And so we've seen over the past 10 years or so movements that have intentionally centered those who are at the low end of the wage scale. Things like the Fight for 15 movement to move the minimum wage up to something that is a livable wage is a very important way of measuring as a society how healthy our working class is. We also need to look at, of course, the debt that the working class, and sometimes we would call the middle class, is facing. That's where I think that the wealth question becomes more important than the wage question. You can make a high salary, but be so indebted 
by student loans, by predatory mortgages, that you are unable to accumulate wealth and the safety that comes with wealth accumulation. Those are two indicators that I think are are super important in terms of whether or not our working class is healthy and able to participate in the economy that we've designed. So in terms of rewriting labor laws, in an attempt to institutionalize justice, if that's even possible. What would be the first thing you would do, keeping in mind that labor laws are like 90 years old now? We have to reframe the perspective from which we draft laws. And that is quite hard to do in a legal system that really thrives and functions on precedent. A precedent steeped in slavery systems is a really hard system to change within the institutions, leaving it in place. But I think for an initial starting point, you have to be race conscious. This idea that America is a colorblind melting pot society is largely a fallacy. And we need to be very radically honest about the fact that the biggest indicator for how well you're going to do in society is who you were born to still. So one of the things we have to do when we write laws like labor laws or employment laws is to be purposely and intentionally as race conscious as we were when we wrote them to be exclusive. (laughs) Right. There's a great project that's coming out of Harvard called the Clean Slate Project, which is doing exactly what you just posed to me, trying to reimagine labor law with the idea that we want climate justice or prison justice or racial justice. What would that look like in U.S. society and U.S. jurisprudence? Oh, that's exciting. We talked a lot about how this is all institutionalized. And in some sense, it feels like if you're an everyday person, you're just trapped in the system and there's very little you can do. But there are some things you could be doing. As an everyday citizen, what are two things I could be doing to demand that we dismantle structural racism? Because we know from social science that the structural inequities are not about individual choices, I don't know that individual solutions is the thing that's going to get us to the next level of being more equitable. But some of the things you can do would be to protect each other as workers, what we call mutual aid. That only occurs if we're sharing information. Right. And and that we're coming to each other's mutual aid. Sometimes that takes the shape of unionization. We do have really hard evidence that unions make society more equitable. And the decline of unions has resulted in an increase in inequality. So one of the things we can do is to act for each other collectively, whether in a union or just in a workplace where we share information about what are our salaries so that information is known. And then therefore we can use some existing legislation that allows us to ask for parity in pay, for instance. Maybe 10 or 15 years ago, there was a book called Lean in by Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook. And she's a white woman who is, you know, in the C-suite. What white women can do at that level is to ask for more money. And that doesn't seem to harm them. And it seems to actually work for them in terms of getting higher pay. You cannot do that as successfully if you are a Black woman, because the way in which our biases work in this 
country, for instance, Black women who face the stereotypes of being angry and aggressive and not good team players when we come in and ask for more money in salary negotiations, sometimes that works against us and not for us. This theme of being really racially conscious in the types of interventions we make at an individual level or at a societal level is really critically important. Those are such great examples. Thank you very much. What is the opportunity with COVID potentially, or even in this new administration, which is maybe not so revolutionary or not so not so progressive, frankly? I love this question because it definitely leads us to a conversation about who should be leading our movements and institutions for change. The people who have been driving movements for change have been doing it for quite some time and have a lot of ideas that just aren't being listened to by the people who control those institutions and political parties and workplaces. So we talk a lot about the Trump presidency and how far back we've gone, at least from some people's point of view. But for Black people, it didn't start at Trump. Our fight for a livable and equal wage was well before the 1960s. We can even go all the way back to slave rebellions. COVID has given us this opportunity to look at a very, very amplified way at the structures that underlie our society and to wake us up to the idea that what we thought was secure, what we thought was fair, what we thought was an institution or a law for equal rights has not been that either by application or by intentional design. And so the question for society is, what do we want to do about that? And who are we going to put in charge of leading that discussion? A really good example would be Biden has a plan for student loan cancellation, which would help a great deal of people. If we really want to talk about equity, then you cannot have a wage cap when it comes to thinking about marginalized groups, but particularly about Black people and particularly about Black women who hold a great deal of the student loan, over trillion dollars in student loan debt that the society has. When we think about systemic inequality and how to fix it, you have to put people in place. You have to consult research that actually is looking at how do we actually change the problem as opposed to treat the symptom. And if people go that way, what we'll have is a set of policies that are radical. It's funny to use the word radical when all we're really calling for is justice. (laughs) Um, But it would be a radical change to American society to peg debt cancellation, for instance, on wealth and not on income. That would require for that to be accepted by society a great deal of education of our citizenry about why that is necessary and why that doesn't take away something from one group and give it to the other. And if it does do that, why that is necessary. And that's the part I'm worried about in terms of impeding this critical moment we have right now to make change is that we don't seem to be entirely keen to have a very frank and radical conversation about the inequities in society and the deep 
institutional change we need to do in order for there to actually be justice. The other thing I worried about is incremental change. And this idea that, well, let's just, you know, do it a little or let's just do that later. We've got these bigger things to focus on. What that actually says to groups who are marginalized is that they are denied justice and we're okay with that. And so we need to be doing a lot of things in all of our approaches to this issue, be they from grassroots movements, be they from the legislative branch, the judicial branch, the executive branch. And just as members of society, we have to get very, very honest about what it means to build an actual society that is just and what kind of sacrifices some of us have to make for those of us who are less privileged. Yeah, I think it's very uncomfortable because there's uncertainty in terms of the kinds of things that we may have to give up. But I actually don't think we have to give up anything. I mean, I think justice is not about taking from one and giving to another. It's really the fact that we don't have equal access to justice and to fair wages. One of the things that you said just now about, you know, doing incremental change, it's the kind of thing where I think we're framing it in a way that doesn't lay bare that incremental change basically demands that the suffering parties have to continue to suffer. It's sort of like, well, you suffered all of these hundreds of years. What's a few more years? It's a kind of an insanity. But I think because we talk about it in ways that are not concrete and doesn't put it in this way, it feels like there's no real harm. I only have one more question. Looking into the future, what makes you hopeful? Hope feels like such a privilege, I think. Because I study international and comparative systems, I do know that another world, another society is possible. I do believe that we can have frank and radical discussions with each other about our experiences and ones that are intersectional and diverse, but it requires bravery It requires for those of us who hold certain privileges to sit in, as you said, this pocket of discomfort and to sort of admit that one of the things that we are losing would be the sort of an American idealism that was really rooted in a fallacy about what our democracy is. But we are, in fact, in control of our democracy, electoral politics is one way of expressing that and having joy and having hope. But also, you know, we cannot overlook the power of people's movements. And that's true for change and against change. And so what we've seen is that this is a society that's made up of people who are quite passionate. And if we can couple that with the deep sort of education we need about what our systems do. And if we could have equity and inclusion in our institutional decision-making, then we can make the kind of radical interventions that we're talking about. If we don't, it will take another hundred years for Black women to have pay equity and the wealth inequity will be double 
that time for us to catch up? And do we want to live in a society where that's true and we know that to be true? I think that's where we are right now. And my hope is that we're having the kind of conversations with our friends and families and allies to move us towards justice and sort of waking up about the status quo. Yes, I hope that this is the time that we really do it once and for all. I mean, it'll still take time, but that we really don't lose momentum and seize the moment. Well, listen, revolution is a marathon and we may not do it in our (laughs) lifetimes, right? The hope is in eventually we will be at a point where we can smile about equity, but we can't be set back by minor losses. Well said. Thank you very much for being on Future Hindsight and thank you for the work that you do. Thank you for inviting me. Perhaps what's most exciting about this conversation during this pandemic time, in the midst of our losses, both personal and at large in our society, is that we really do have an opportunity to reimagine what justice and equity mean and to actively decide if that's what we're going to pursue. I don't think that the world before COVID is available to us anymore. Whatever the future holds, it will be new to all of us. And it is, to Tamara's point about our democracy, in our control. We can shape and influence our path forward. The fact that unions are innovating is already incredibly hopeful because the evidence has shown that unions do make our societies more equitable. This means that there is a chance that we will succeed to reframe labor and equity with race consciousness and honesty. Next week, our guest is Laura Briggs. She's professor at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, whose research studies the relationship between reproductive politics, neoliberalism, and the long durée of U.S. empire and imperialism. We'll be talking about her latest book, Taking Children, A History of American Terror. In 1960 alone, 150,000 black children entered the child welfare system as southern states passed suitable home rules one after another. And I think it's really important to think about the modern child welfare system being born in that moment as part of the work of punishing black communities in rebellion for their work in seeking to desegregate public accommodations through the schools. We examine the deep history of taking children by the U.S. government and what this history reveals about racism in America. Until next time, stay engaged. I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for continuing to listen to Future Hindsight. Our executive producer is Mila Atmos. The audio producer is Peter Fedak. And our associate producers are Miriam Zumbul and Brooke Sion. Be sure to listen to us on Apple Podcasts futurehindsight.com or wherever you enjoy podcasts every week. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.